0: Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 14. Psalm 14. It was said by Mahatma Gandhi You must not lose faith in humanity. Humanity is an ocean. If a few drops of the ocean are dirty, the ocean does not become dirty. This was said regarding one having faith in humanity, restoring your hope and your faith in the goodness of man. And it was interesting in my research on this quote to read what others had written as a response to it. And one writer said this, Just because there are some bad people in the world, it doesn't mean the entire world is bad. It is still beautiful and there is still good everywhere. Remain hopeful and remember that there are good people out there. It's no surprise to us that this is the popular opinion of our culture, to believe in yourself, believe in people, have faith in humanity. Everyone is really good. Everyone is, for the most part, good. And yes, we recognize there are a few bad nuts within the bunch, but... Overall, mankind is good. But as we come to the scriptures, we see that that view is completely opposite of what the Bible teaches. And Psalm 14 is a helpful reminder for us or instruction to us of what God says mankind is really like. And you remember, we've been making our way through a series in the Psalms. We began with Psalm 19, and we talked about the powerful revelation of God and his general revelation seen through creation, that he is the creator and through his work we recognize that there is a God, but yet his revelation is more powerfully and clearly seen through his word, his sufficient and necessary word. Last week we looked at Psalm 99, which reminded us of the holiness of God, that we are to praise and worship the Holy King. And we've been talking about how the Psalms should help be driving us to look up at God more instead of getting stuck looking down in our woes. But as we go about this life and we look out, we are confronted with seeing rampant wickedness of a fallen world. Almost weekly, we're seeing man's depravity on display. So, Today, we're going to look at Psalm 14, and this psalm helps give us a correct understanding of what we see, helps give us a correct view of what's going on in the world around us, why Why this world is so broken and so crazy. We get a view, we get God's view of what man is really like. So let's read Psalm 14 together. It begins in Psalm 14, to the choir master of David. Psalm 14 is an extended reflection on the sinfulness of man. We categorize it as what's called a lament. It's a psalm of lament, which is an expression of grief. And this grief for whatever situation usually ends, though, at a note of praise to God or a cry to God for help. And all of this, this reflection on the sinfulness of man, the cry for help, drives the main point that the depravity of man leads us to long for deliverance. The depravity of man leads us to long for deliverance. Now, I've used the word depravity already, and we're going to use it a lot, so let us let me give you a quick definition of it. According to Merriam-Webster... Depravity is the quality or state of being corrupt, evil, or perverted. Corrupt, evil, or perverted. So that's what we're going to see. And you can divide this psalm really into three sections. The first three verses, one through three, give us the character of depravity, what it's like. Verses four through six give us the cruelty of depravity. And then lastly, verse seven gives us the cry for deliverance. Now, as always, we've got to set the context. What's the historical context behind this? Well, if you look at your Bibles, you see in a smaller print, typically, it says to the choir master of David. So that's it. That's the context we know. We know that this was written to the choir master, meaning this was a song. This, this psalm on the depravity of man was meant to be sung by the gathered assembly for worship makes you wonder how, if we compared our modern songs to this, do we, we might find we don't typically sing about sin. It's not common today. But we also know it was written by David. This would be King David. And it was written at some unknown point in his life when he was reflecting upon the sinfulness of man and the destruction that sin te- seems to bring. And such pondering led him to plead to God to deliver him. To deliver him and and his people from the extent and the effect of sin, which is everywhere. And and we ourselves are greatly benefited by having this psalm. We can praise the Lord for that because we get a view of what God sees man is really like. So with that, let's look at the first view. We see the character of depravity in verses 1 through 3. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. We see this is the, the wicked core of the fool, the wicked creed of the fool, saying there is no God. Okay, so who are we talking about? Who is making this declaration? It's the fool. Well, what is a fool? How do we describe the fool? Well, when you think of the word fool, it means worthless. Someone who's worthless. Someone who is perverse, both morally and intellectually. Someone who is vile. So we might just say a sinner. Or as one resource says, it, one writer said, it's one who has no relationship with God. The fool is an unbeliever. Often when you read through, especially Old Testament poetry, the Proverbs and the Psalms, you get this distinction between the wise man and the foolish man. Well, the fool is obviously the opposite of the wise man. The wise man fears God loves God, seeks to obey God. The exact opposite of as the fool. He doesn't care about God, doesn't try to honor God, rejects God. This word fool brings the illustration of, imagine a tree, but it's a dead tree. And all its leaves are just withering up and decaying away. There's no life in it, nothing substantial. It brings forth Nothing. Uh, that's the fool. This is the one who tries to live independently from God. And, and the fool in Scripture is not just the intellectual atheist. Not just the one who thinks they've reasoned themselves not even believing God exists. It's not just the intellectual atheist, but as many have said, it's the practical atheist. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Boy, how that verse goes against the grain of our culture that tells you to believe in yourself. The fool thinks that God doesn't exist or that God doesn't care or that God can't do anything or God won't do anything. He thinks he's not accountable to God, and and in fact, God is accountable to him. There are many passages in Scripture that describe the foolish person. But just one here, Isaiah 32, Isaiah 32, verses 6 through 7, we see a description of this evil fool when it says, For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord. To leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. His plans, he plans wicked schemes, to ruin the poor with lying words, even with the plea, even when the plea of the needy is right. He is busy in his heart with iniquity, with sin. The love of sin, and I want more sin. And it's typically not said that way. It's more of, I want what I want. And I want it now, and don't you dare get in my way. So this is the fool. What does he say? He says, there's no God. The text simply can be read, no God. The fool says, no God. This is, in all areas of his life, the response is, no God. No, thank you. It's a gesture of defiance, a declaration of defiance. In fact, it denies the most plain evidence about God, as we've seen in past weeks about or in Psalm 19, that even the heavens declare the glory of God. He says, no, God. Turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. We've referenced this several times recently, but I found it fascinating in Romans 1, and we'll begin in verse 18, as we go through this description of fallen man and the rejection of God to see how many times the Apostle Paul references the fool or futile or foolish. Follow along with me. I'm going to begin in verse 18 and just listen for those key words. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Jump to verse 28. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the description of the fool mentioned in Psalm 14. Rejecting the most basic understanding of God, denying his rule, over them and refusing to worship him and instead to worship themselves by indulging in their unrighteous desires. And they go so far to the extent that not only do they enjoy practicing their sin, they approve the sin of others and encourage it. This is the fool. Go back to Psalm 14. He says there's no God. Now, interesting. Look at the text there. It says... There is no God. He doesn't say there's no Yahweh, no Lord. The idea, he's using a more general title and name for God. So this doesn't just apply to Israel unbelieving Israelites. This would apply to anyone, all mankind. And interestingly, he, using the, the name Elohim, which tends to draw out the idea of God as the supreme, all-powerful, all-authoritative creator and ruler of the universe, So in their rejection of Elohim, saying there is no Elohim, there is no supreme, divine, all-powerful ruler that I must submit to. No God, I can do what I want. The fool is committed to living as if God has no important place in his life. Now, if you notice, I skipped over something. We know he's talking about the fool. We know what the fool says. But did you catch what I missed? Where does he say it? In his heart. In his heart. Now, obviously, it would flow from his lips and his mouth, this rejection of God, but it originates from his heart. And when we talk about the heart in the Bible, we're talking about the center of a person, who they are. One writer said this is where moral and ethical decision-making comes from. It's who you really are, who you are in your thoughts and your desires and your motives and your love and your worship. And at his core, the fool wants nothing to do with God. It leads him to a denial of the truth. And so the problem is not an intellectual problem. There are many who claim and demonstrate high levels of intelligence in this world, yet in doing so, they reject the existence and authority of God. So it shows the real problem is a heart problem. Because of the heart, the love and worship that should be designated towards God alone is replaced with the idol of self. And so you might be wondering, if you're like me, Okay, how did we even get to this point? How in the world did we end up with this description of mankind? Well, I'm so glad you asked, because the Bible gives the answer. We know that in Genesis 1, God, by the word of his power, created all things, and they were good. They were perfect. There was no sin. There was no death. And yet, when we hit Genesis 3, we encounter this serpent, who is the evil one, come and tempt Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. And he tempts them to disobey God, to rebel against God, and they do. They eat from the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, when God said not to. And so with their sin, there came consequences, just as God had warned there would be consequences. Death entered creation at the fall. At the fall, not before the fall. This is why we reject evolution. It says death existed before that time. It did not. Death is a result of sin. And so, with the first sin came the consequence of death. Now, death, at its most basic meaning, is separation. And so, we see three types of death introduced into mankind. First is what we say is. Man died spiritually in the sense that they are separated from a right relationship with the holy God. And they are now blind to spiritual truth. We're unable naturally to do anything our own to please God and we need to be reconciled to him. But we can't do anything of our own to reconcile ourself. And in fact, it's so devastating that we now love that sin That brings death, and we are captive to it. But also at the fall came physical death. Physical death. Now, Adam and Eve didn't drop down dead right at that moment physically, but it began the process. The process that leads to physical death, and eventually it also brings eternal death. Eternal death. Without God's redemption, men and women will spend eternity separated from the good blessings of God. Only to receive his just wrath that they deserve as a transgressor of his law. Romans 5 even tells us that through one man's sin, through Adam's sin, death entered the world and all are counted as sinners. And yet we're not just counted as sinners, we also know that we inherit a sinful nature from our great ancestor Adam. We call this original sin. Everyone has sinned. Because everyone is a sinner. Thankfully, as we think about the beauty of God's word, we learn of a man who is not a sinner. The one man in history who has never sinned. And that man is Jesus Christ, the God-man, who came to this earth, lived perfectly obedient to the law of God, never sinned, and yet went to the cross. Not to die for his own sins, because he didn't have any, but... To die for your sins and my sins so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for someone else. And he died and he rose again. And those who trust in him are forgiven of their transgressions and now given the promise of eternal life. No longer under the headship of Adam, but under the headship of Christ. The sin is devastating. And to say there is no God brings three results. Three consequences of denying God makes us corrupt. We do abominable deeds, and none of us do good. It says they are corrupt. Well, what does it mean to be corrupt? What does that word mean? Well, it means to be spoiled. Not like a spoiled kid, but like spoiled milk. Spoiled, to be ruined, to be wicked, morally perverted and tainted. Everything within you is touched and infected by sinful desires. And it's an internal issue that affects, infects everything external. And this rejection of God, it spoils all of one's life. It taints how we view life. It taints how we respond to circumstances in our life. And all mankind is wicked. It infects all of us and it spreads. We do a very good job of spreading it. So that it shows its ugly fruit very quickly. And if you want a glimpse of that, just read read the news headlines. And you get a glimpse of the depravity of man in their nonsensical nature of how they respond when someone does something that goes against their opinions and preferences. People seem to explode. And instead of rationally reasoning together, it turns into chaos and rage. In fact, the heart is so deceitful that people believe they're doing right by their promotion of sin and their engagement in it. They think it's right. This is corruption. But not only are we corrupt, naturally, but says they do abominable deeds. Well, what does abominable mean? It means that they are vile, evil, detestable, foul, revolting, Anything anti-God, these are external deeds. Things we do and say externally. The rejection and denial of God has such a profound impact that it twists and distorts all our best of deeds. Sin brings destruction and devastation, and it always does. And it leads to this last of the three, this kind of a conclusion that there is none who does good. None does good. Sin has so tainted man that he is unable to do anything outside of Christ that is morally pleasing to God. In fact, Hebrews eleven six picks this up when it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, While some actions or gestures of unbelievers, we would say, appear good, appear good, which would only be a testimony to the common grace of God, the problem is that even what appears to be good flows out of someone with a heart that rejects God. Someone who is guilty of violating God's laws, said to be a hater of God, an enemy of God, and is thoroughly corrupted by the infection of sin. And this infection of sin is so devastating that it renders us incapable of delivering ourselves. Which, when the Apostle Paul will pick up these verses and and quote them in Romans chapter 3 to show that no one does good, not even one, no one is righteous, meaning where he'll culminate to say all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one who is good enough to reconcile themselves, but in the pivotal moment of that chapter, almost even of the book, we see this progression that while no one can save themselves or no one is inherently righteous, God has shown amazing grace by fixing that problem for us. By sending Jesus to die for our sins, to save us by His grace. So if you've not trusted in Christ, that is your only hope. You need to do so today. So the fool says, no God. And to a sense, we understand the intellectual atheism of denying the existence of God. But the greater danger, even for us, is what is called practical atheism. Practical atheism, which says basically this. I can live my life however I want, and God won't or can't do anything about it. I don't care what God says. Yeah, I affirm he exists, but I can go about living how I want. No one else sees it. I do it in the privacy of my home or my recreation or my work. That's just practical atheism. And it's not just out there in the world. It can infect even in the church. Because we ourselves are naturally sinners. And yes, we are saved by the grace of Christ when we trust in him. But our flesh is still prone toward these ways. People mimic Christianity, but if you were to look at how they actually live, there is no evidence they care about God. Imagine... Someone could follow you around for a week. For some of you, this is a terrifying analogy already. But someone could follow you around and record everything you say, everything you do, everything you desire, every thought you had, every motive you had, and could gather all of that evidence from a week. Would they have enough evidence to find you as guilty of being a Christian? of guilty as someone who loves God, as guilty as someone who says, there is a God and I love Him and I am dependent upon His grace and I trust in Him and I submit all my life to Him. Is there enough evidence to find you guilty of that? We ought to ponder that. But speaking of someone gathering evidence, the Lord Himself has done that. Look at verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. This is the Lord's investigation. The Lord's investigation on what man is really like. And it's not just the pagans. He calls it the children of man. This is everyone to see if any understand. The idea of looking down might trigger in your mind a memory of the accounts of the flood in the Tower of Babel. When we read about the flood in the Tower of Babel, it is said that God looked down upon man to see what their heart was like, to see what their deeds were like. Not that he had to learn, he already knew. But we get this glimpse of God investigating what's going on so he could declare the state of man's heart. And even it says in Genesis 6 5, "...the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth." And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. No, that is not reading out of today's headlines. This was an account from the flood. But it still affects, sin still affects men to this day. We can't escape it. And so the Lord is examining to see if anyone understands what is right and how to live in a way that honors him. Now, not everyone is... Foolishly aggressive in their rejection of God. Most are probably internally despising God or more likely they're just inconsiderate of him. They don't give him the time or day. And so the Lord is seeking. Does anyone acting righteously? Does anyone long to know him? He's gathering all this evidence to make a case against man. And look at verse 3. We see the Lord's verdict. The outcome of that investigation He says, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Not even one. This is God's final word on what everyone is like. All of mankind, including us, what we naturally are like without Christ. All turned aside. No one seeks to know God to figure out what he's like, how to walk on the way of the straight and narrow. They turned aside together in their own wicked ways. They are corrupt, corrupt together. Again, the idea of that spoiled milk, what started out as good and helpful turns to disgusting and harmful. What God made good has now become reviling. And it doesn't mean that mankind is as bad as he could be. It could be a lot worse. By the grace of God, it's not a lot worse, but sin does completely infect every area of our lives. And not even one does good. This reminds me a lot in evangelism, having some conversations with people and asking them if they'd consider themselves to be a good person, and how frequently people like to proclaim their own goodness course i'm a good person yeah i'm i'm good I, I mean i'm not the best i'm not perfect but i'm good i'm like okay that's interesting you just told me that you're a liar and a thief and a blasphemer of god but you're a good person but that's that's our natural heart we like to proclaim our own goodness one writer said about this that i find is catchy He says, every man, so long as he lieth unrenewed and unreconciled unto God, is in effect nothing but a madman, running to his own destruction and losing his soul and eternal life, even when he seems most to gain the world. Sin makes us madmen, pursuing what we think will make us happy while racing to hell. But at least I'm happy on the way there. That's not happiness. But by the time we get to the end of verse 3, there is this expectation. The psalmist is kind of setting up of if the Lord investigated it and the Lord's verdict is guilty, then we ought to expect divine judgment from a holy God. And we would understand why he would bring divine judgment because man is sinful, man is guilty before God. And before we go saying the world out there is like that, which they are, we must first remember where we came from, what we are like outside of Christ. That verdict would find us guilty too. And so we remember we are in desperate need too of being rescued and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't justify ourselves before God. We can't make a catchy enough argument to persuade God. Hey, well, I know I did that, but did you see this? Not pretty good. We can't trick God. We need the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ that provides the payment for our sin, that deals with the guilt of our sin. But while we walk in these bodies, our fallen flesh is still prone to drift towards the life of the fool, what we used to be. And so we recognize that we need Jesus to save us, but we also should recognize we need Jesus to sustain us. We must continually put the sin away that we see in our life. And so ask yourself, in what ways am I living like the fool? In what ways am I living like the fool? When we indulge in our sin, we are in effect saying, there's no God, he doesn't care. It doesn't matter what he says. I'm going to do what I want. Which is the same thing the fool says. We ought to put that away. Well, the scriptures help us understand why we see the depravity that's swirling around us almost nonstop and relentlessly. And at this point of the psalm, we should be grieved by the state of mankind. That the character of man is utterly depraved. But This depravity, this wickedness, is not just my own personal issues. It doesn't affect anybody else. Depravity affects others all the time. And so we see in verses 4 through 6, the second point, that we see the cruelty of depravity. The cruelty of depravity. Verse 4 says, "...have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord?" This is the cruelty of depravity it's sin is cruel in two ways one on the sinner it's himself but also it's cruel on the people of god in verse four we see that the fool doesn't see his own sin and he doesn't understand its wickedness i mean there are many who have attained a great deal of knowledge and prestige in this world They have their blogs, they have their books, they have their seats of professorship, they have their History Channel documentaries. A lot seem very knowledgeable, yet they still reject the existence and authority of their creator. They are ignorant to their sin. They don't consider the judgment that it brings. They are, what we would say, blind to the truth. Because fallen man's heart loves sin and is captive to it. So he will always view life through the glasses of corruption and foolishness. And as we view it through that lens, that filter, it hits our brain, which is broken and can't think or reason correctly because of the effects of sin. Which is why we need the mind of Christ to help us think rightly And if you are in Christ, you have the mind of Christ, you should, if there's any application right now, it should be praise God that he's opened my eyes to see the truth. He gets all the credit for that. I can't reason my way to God. I need him to open my eyes to see the foolishness of my sin. But he describes the fool here as not just a fool, but as evildoers. Or some of your Bibles might say workers of iniquity. This reminds us of the Isaiah 32 passage where their heart works iniquity. It's busy about the, the business of transgression. This is what sinners do, what they're devoted to. And they truly don't know God. And they truly don't care. Psalm 82.5 says, They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. Depravity is so devastating that the unbeliever is repelled by anything relating to God, whether he verbally admits it or not. He expresses, as we see here, this cruelty of sin by his hatred and his persecution of God's people. Because he says, they eat up my people as they eat bread. They devour them. Just as natural as eating is for us to sustain our life, So the hatred towards those who believe in God is natural to the unbeliever. The wicked hate God's people because, well, they are God's people. And they wrong the saints and use them for their own gain. And this greed, this hunger is never satisfied. And while it says they don't call upon them, they ought to call upon him. They ought to call upon the Lord. They ought to submit to the Lord. They ought to be praying to the Lord. But they don't. Because naturally, we don't think we need God. In Verse 5, it says, There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. They're in great terror. They're in great dread. This word at the beginning of verse 5, there, which is there, indicates a future coming event. It's looking forward to something. Well, what is that? That is the judgment of God. When they're accountable to God, when everyone is accountable to God, they know, and they're in their dread, they know that God does not stand with them, though they try to brush it aside. They try to erase the dread that really bruises in their heart, the dread that they will stand accountable to their Creator. And they try to erase it with anger, with intelligence, with deceitful passions, but they cannot get rid of it. It can't be undone. The sinful person knows that there is a difference between them and God's people because God is with his people. But they afflict. It is natural that the fool, the evildoer, afflicts God's people. And afflicting God's children brings holy judgment you you mess with the children you get the wrath of the father and verse 6 says you would shame the plans of the poor but the lord is his refuge history has testified to this that unbelievers and false religions always try to destroy or shame god's people the darkness finds the light repulsive and we'll do whatever it can to get away from the light. And so God's people are persecuted because they try to eliminate God. But God is with his people. He is their refuge. He hears them. He cares for his people. He protects his people. And this doesn't mean that we'll never suffer, that we'll never go through hardship. But it doesn't mean that God is in control of it and uses it exactly as it, he intends. Just recall the story of Joseph, where he's sold by his brothers into slavery, but yet ends up in Pharaoh's house, ruling in Egypt to deliver. God put him there to deliver Egypt, the world, and the line of Jacob mainly from this famine. And when the brothers come to him, Joseph admits, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. God walks with us through hardships, and those hardships are perfectly measured out. They're never beyond God's intention. But we will face them, and we will face persecution. And when it seems like wickedness is prevailing, and you personally feel the pressure of evildoers, you can remember that God knows, God cares, God will be with you, And God will do what is right. And as bad as this world may get, and it will get bad, and however hard it may get for Christians, we can rest assured knowing God is with us. And God will bring judgment. While the fool says in his heart now, there is no God, he will not be singing that tune for all eternity. One day every knee will bow before the Lord. And confess that he is Lord. But on his own, on our own, mankind, we cannot escape the coming judgment of the Holy Creator. It is coming, whether we believe it's coming or not. It doesn't change the truth, the reality of it. You can sit at a campfire and look at a flame and say, I don't believe that's hot. And everyone laughs at you with how foolish you are. And you stick your hand in there, it's still going to burn you. Just because you believe one way or the other does not change the reality. God's judgment is coming, so please turn from your sins and trust in Christ today, because you don't know what day it's coming. Before the Lord's people, God is their refuge. Even in the midst of a wicked world, we can have comfort and joy knowing that God is always with us. He's always doing what's right. He gives us the strength to endure what he brings our way. And we can trust in him. And so we ought not be surprised when we see such hatefulness expressed towards Christians and the church. And it grieves us. We should be grieved up to this point in the psalm. But we're hitting a transition where our grief is turning to express our hope. We see in verse 7, the last one there, the cry for deliverance. Oh, that salvation for Israel will come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let him be glad. This psalm is a lament of the depravity of man and the hateful actions of fallen man against God's people. But it doesn't end there in that dark state. This last verse is David's cry of hope. That can be our cry of hope. God's people always have hope because the Lord is with them and the Lord promises to deliver them one day. And by his mercy, the day of restoration will happen when God's people will prevail over the wicked because the Lord himself will be here to prevail over the wicked. And David is longing that this Lord would come, that the king would come. We hear a glimpse of that in the Lord's Prayer, do we not? When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And salvation has come. In a sense, it has come. Jesus has come. To live the life you and I never could and yet die for our sins on the cross and be risen again so that when we repent and trust in him, not only are we forgiven and given eternal life, but we are now made kingdom citizens. We are ready for the day when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom. We are qualified now to enter it because of what he has done. But the fullness of our salvation, the final day of deliverance is still awaiting And that's what David was looking forward to, when God will reign and rule with his people on earth. We call this the second coming of Christ, and we still wait for that day. But that day will bring a restoration for the Lord's people, a restoration of Israel. When God will finally deal with the captivity of persecution and sin that his people deal with. When what sin and sinners have destroyed, God will make New And it's not an if God does that. It is a when the Lord does that. When the Messiah returns, when Jesus returns to rule as king, he will sit on his throne in Zion, on his throne in Jerusalem, and he will make his presence known to all. His power will be known to all, and his protection over his people will be known to all. Zephaniah 3, 15 and 17 express the joy of that day and describing what will happen. And this is what it says. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. It will be a joyous day for God's people. And it will be a terrible day for God's enemies. Don't be one of those enemies. Repent and trust in Jesus today. The day will be great And it will be full of rejoicing, but we don't have to wait for that day to rejoice. We can rejoice today if we are in Christ. We can rejoice today because we know that the gospel has delivered us from the character, the cruelty, and even the consequences of our depravity. Because we are depraved. All mankind is. And we are in need of rescue. So whose view about man are you going to believe? God's view or man's? I would plead with you to believe God's view, the Creator's view, the Holy One's assessment. Because we must see our sin and the consequences of it if we are going to turn to Christ. And Christ is that only source of deliverance. So Psalm 14 drives us to look forward. We look back a little as we reflect on depravity and see where we came from if we're in Christ. But we don't stay there. It drives us to look forward to the return of Jesus. We look up and praise God, and we look forward to when Christ will return. And we ought to be anticipating that day, praying that that day would be soon, focusing our joy Our mind on what God has done for us and will do for us. And as we watch the increase of open, visible wickedness in our world where shame has seemed to have gone out the window, it in turn increases our the cry of our heart for Jesus' return. So that we walk away from the Psalm saying, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray that. Pray, come Lord Jesus, come today. We're tired of sin, not only the sin in our own hearts, a sin we so wrestle with often and easily entangles us, but we are worn down also by a sin-filled world. And we long for the day that the King returns and finally deals with sin once and for all. And so we pray it would be today. But if it's not, Father, help us to find our strength in you. Help us to find the courage we need in you. Help us to persevere. Help us to constantly be looking up and praising you and looking forward to our hope. Father, may we take your word seriously. May we set aside those idols where we act like the fool still. And may we be more like Christ. Father, if anyone does not know Christ, please open their eyes to see the truth. And may they repent and trust in him today so that we all would rejoice in the mighty work you have done. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.